Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Banker Pippo YouTube channel. This is another episode of Coffee and Kernels. I'm Bryce, and I'm extremely happy and excited that you're here. We're going to have a little bit of fun today. We're just going to go around the world of movies and video games just for a little bit. And we're just going to have some fun conversations and chat a little bit, mostly about Far Cry and a little bit about Gears of War today, just because it's kind of been the theme of my videos this week, for those of you who have been watching some of my content. But we got another good show for you today. Let's kind of get right into it. First, we'll kind of start off in the world of movies. And some of the biggest headlines I ran across this week involved two different movies one the batman which is going to be coming out in 2022 starring robert pattinson and also john wick 4 which is also going to be coming out in 2022 starring the one and only keanu reeves one of the best sci-fi action stars i think of all time but anyways so some news surrounding john wick 4 donnie yen is going to be joining the cast of john wick 4 according to i believe it was deadline if i'm not mistaken they said that donnie yen is going to be joining as portraying a character that was a former ally of John Wick while John was in the world of being, oh, what is the name of the group he was part of? I guess I'll just say Assassin, Hitman, whatever it might be. And they joined forces, apparently. So I'm really excited to see John Wick 4. For those of you who don't know, it's going to come out May 27th, I believe, of 2022. So about a year out from now. And I love the first three John Wick movies. They're some of my favorite action movies of all time. I have them all on 4K Ultra HD, and I'm going to watch one of them later on today. It's just Keanu Reeves. I don't know what he... It's something about the sci-fi film formula. He portrays it very, very well. He did it in The Matrix. He does it in John Wick. Uh, he's done Ronin 47, which I haven't seen. I don't know if that was any good or not. But anyways, I'm excited for John Wick 4. If you guys are too, feel free to jump down in the comments below and let me know what your excitement level is for that movie as well. So the next big headline I saw this week, Robert Pattinson actually signed a first look deal with Warner Brothers. So what does that actually mean? If Robert Pattinson wants to produce any sort of film, screenplay, content, whatever, he signs a deal with Warner Brothers where he has to give them the first right of refusal. And if they say no to produce the content he wants to create, then he can go off to other studios and sell his idea as well. So, um... Good for Robert Pattinson. Sealing a deal like that with Warner Brothers is no easy feat, and I think Robert Pattinson's trajectory of his career is only on the up and up. He's had incredible performance after incredible performance after incredible performance. I thought he was brilliant in Tenet. I've seen him in The Lighthouse with him and Willem Dafoe. It's a really far out there movie, and he really gets to show his acting chops. I saw him in Good Time with the Safdie brothers. That movie was pretty incredible, too. So if you guys are looking for what else Robert Pattinson has participated in, I highly recommend checking out those movies as well. So good on Robert Pattinson for that as well. Moving away from movies, kind of moving more towards into video games for the rest of the episode today. So uh, God of War is going to be delayed until 2022. I can't remember the exact date that's going to be delayed to, but this is kind of fully expected for a lot of games in industry right now with the COVID-19 pandemic and a lot of uh, gaming industry studios, AAA studios, and pretty much all video game studios, pretty much every industry working from home. It's really hindered a lot of games. And I think a lot of other games have actually been getting delayed pretty recently for another year. It only makes sense, right? Because there's a lot of logistics that go into game making that require a lot of intense collaboration, a lot of certain equipment that require being in person. And with the pandemic being in person, hasn't really been very possible. It's still going on. So a lot of these games have been getting delayed until 2022, but totally makes sense uh i wish the god of war team all the best because i know making their games is not easy making any game is not easy especially a good one too so and speaking of that if you guys are a uh, big god of war fans they play the playstation youtube channel 
or I believe it was the PlayStation Network YouTube channel, made a documentary. It was like an hour and a half feature called Raising Kratos, where they talk about uh, Cody Barlog and the development of the God of the 2018 God of War game, the game of the year, I believe. So check that out if you're looking for something interesting, just a little bit of insight into the gaming industry and what a AAA studio like Santa Monica Studio goes through when they're developing games. It's fascinating, and I really enjoyed seeing it. It really opened my eyes a little bit, so... Uh, that'll do it just with some big headlines from this week. E3 is going to be coming up pretty soon. Xbox is going to be there. Nintendo is going to be there. I don't know if PlayStation will be there. That's still... I don't think that's been confirmed yet whether or not they'll be there. They haven't been there the last couple of years, so I'm not sure if PlayStation is going to be there or not. 2019, they skipped out. 2020, E3 basically didn't happen, so that's another year gone. But anyways, are you guys excited for E3? Feel free to jump down in the comments below and let me know whatever your thoughts are. Alright, so let's kind of move into the main bread and butter of today's episode, which is going to be Far Cry. So Far Cry had their gameplay reveal about a week ago, and they announced that the release date is going to be coming October 7th of 2021. They had a full trailer and everything. Uh, Some of my impressions from the trailer, I got to watch it. I liked the trailer. I think my excitement for the game's actually gone down a little bit since revealing it, the trailer. The one thing that I'm really, really nervous about is that this is going to be another Far Cry game where we have a really not-so-great protagonist and we have an outstanding antagonist, but we rarely see that outstanding, interesting antagonist. And with a good talent like Giancarlo Esposito being in this game, it, it makes me really nervous that Ubisoft isn't going to use him as much as maybe myself or maybe other fans would like to. It's a symptom that we saw, I believe, in Far Cry 3 and Far Cry 4. Joseph Seed was a lot more in Far Cry 5. We got to see him a lot more, so maybe they're heading in the right trajectory in terms of showing their strongest characters being their antagonists. But they could use some work on their protagonists, and there's nothing in the trailer that kept me encouraged from going away from those feelings. So the, it, the game looks pretty gorgeous. Like You can tell just in the details of the weapons that our protagonist is holding that the graphics just keep getting continuously better each and every game, and it makes sense, right, keeping the game graphics up to the standards and technology of today is really, really exciting. So there's some good takeaways I had from it, and there's some bad takeaways. My excitement for the game went down a little bit, but I'm still going to buy it, and I'm still probably going to play it day one, so I'm really excited for the game to come out. But in watching this trailer, it... I found myself revisiting some thoughts and feelings that I had from the previous Far Cry game. So just for a bit of background, I have only played Far Cry 3... Far Cry 4, Far Cry 5, and Far Cry New Dawn. I haven't played any of the Far Cry's previous to to those four games. So I have seen a lot of great villains in the Far Cry franchise, but I haven't seen all of them. And I guess where am I going with this? One of those feelings that I revisited in throughout playing those games is the fact that they a lot of them have very strong antagonists, very strong villains. And to me, out of the four games that I've played, the two of the strongest antagonists were Voss Montenegro from Far Cry 3 and Pagan Min from Far Cry 4. They're both really awesome villains, and both, I'd say, were pretty popular amongst the Far Cry fanbase. Far Cry 3 and Voss, I think, are the most popular of the two in terms of the Far Cry fanbase. A lot of times when, even in my videos this week, a lot of people said they liked Voss a lot. They said they like Far Cry 3 a lot, and a lot of fans, and even some friends of mine, have said the same thing, that Far Cry 3 is like the pinnacle of their Far Cry experience, and so is Voss. So, 
it some of the con- one of the conclusions I drew from those games is like I said earlier, Ubisoft has done a very very good job at creating some interesting antagonists throughout the series, not so much their protagonists, but I kind of thought to myself, okay, out of Voss and Paganmen, which of the two is the better villain? That's kind of the thought I've been having with myself throughout this entire week. And in and of itself, it's kind of a hefty question because of the fact that it begs other larger questions. By saying which is the better villain, it also begs questions like what makes a great villain? Is it the fact that they're strong leaders? Is it their insidious intentions? Is it their poise? What exactly makes a great villain? So before I started kind of having that conversation and dialogue with myself and you guys, those of you who watch my videos, I kind of asked myself, what makes a great villain? What? How do we define a great villain? So I came up with a small definition that I think great villains must possess. I think great villains must possess a few things. They've got to be great leaders in and of themselves. They have to have respect and reverence from others. they got to have poise, control, and maturity in really, really tough situations, really tough spots where they got to make uh, really hard calls that have a lot of implications. they got to have emotional intelligence. they got to be charismatic as well. they got to have followers, right? And they have to know what makes people tick. In addition to that, they've got to be motivated. When you've got characters in any story, whether they're villains, antagonists, protagonists, side characters, if they don't have any clear motivations to us as the audience, it kind of begs the question, why are they really there? What is their purpose in the story? So they've also got to have a clear motivation to us anyway. And also, lastly, they have to know how to overcome adversity and also adapt. I don't think you can be really an effective leader without having faced some sort of adversity and learning how to climb yourself out of that hole. It's a part of that experience that makes you stronger, I think, as a person, as a character, whether it be fact or fiction, nonfiction or otherwise. You have to be able to adapt to the situations that you're in because the world is constantly changing around you. Variables are always changing. It's very rare one thing will stay the same for very, very long. So just to kind of reiterate, to be a great villain, you've got to be a great leader, which includes a plethora of things, including respect, charisma, emotional intelligence, and poise. You've got to be motivated. Without that clear motivation, it begs the question, why are you here in the story? What's your purpose here? And third, you've got to overcome adversity. You've got to learn to adapt. So those three things, to me, are what make a great villain. You might have a different definition of a great leader at home, and thus your answer is going to be different from mine. And that's cool, too. Feel free to share that down in the comments below. But to me, that is what makes a great villain. So now that we've kind of concocted this definition of what makes a great villain and after considering that a little bit more i have to say i think pagan min is by and far a much better villain than Voss is in this case and for me pagan min crosses off every single attribute that i laid out in my definition of a great villain we'll start off with his respect and reverence from others so the one of the first things i noticed in far cry 4 when AJ is on the bus and Darpan asks for his passport, he puts in some sort of dollar figure, some sort of dollar bill into the passport as kind of a bribe to the karate soldiers that they're going to encounter. And whose face is on that currency but Pagan Min? Pagan Min is literally on the currency of every single piece of money in Karat. And he shows this even further by asking Paul for money. Paul gives him all of the cash in his wallet and every single different dollar bill, Pagan Min, Pagan Min. It shows that he's got a certain power that 
nobody else really has in Quebec because he's on all of their currency. So in order to have that power, you got to have some respect and reverence from others to give you that power. That power just doesn't come from you saying, oh, I am the king. No, it's other people buying into it and believing that you are the king. And being on all their currency is a byproduct of that. Whether or not it's a dictatorship or not, you got that power somehow. And without people there to support you, you can't keep that power. So that's the first clue to me that shows that he's got respect and reverence from others is the fact that he is on all of their currency. And in addition to that, every command he gives is obeyed and honored or consequences ensue, really heavy ones. In some cases, death. For example, when he first, uh, I don't want to say kidnaps AJ, when he first picks AJ up and him, AJ, Darpan, and Paul are all sitting at the table about to eat Crab Rangoon and dinner, he, he says to Paul, Paul, I need cash. Without question, Paul says, how much do you need? Gives him the cash. The command was obeyed and honored without any fuss, and there was a certain respect and reverence that was there. He didn't say why, he didn't question it, he just gave him the money as much as he wanted or needed at that exact moment. His other lieutenant, Yuma, he tells Yuma, even though that AJ is in Yuma's prison, says, keep him and the most important parts of him intact. Yuma obeys and honors that command, and it shows that with how powerful Paul and Yuma are as his lieutenants because they're very powerful people in their own right they could probably go off and do whatever they wanted they choose to respect and revere pagan men enough to stick around and obey his commands without question despite them being powerful they probably could have a shot at killing pagan if they really want to but they respect and revere him enough to not want to take over his kingdom or go out on his own so there's clear respect and reverence from very powerful people within pagan men's kingdom so again kind of contributing to respect and reverence from others and kind of going off of the point of emotional intelligence a little bit, Paganman has a great amount of emotional intelligence for his soldiers and his constituents. What do I mean by that? He is emotionally intelligent enough to know what makes and motivates these people into making them tick to do what he wants. That's not to say that he treats them well. He treats them pretty poorly in some cases, but he knows how to motivate people. At the very beginning of the game, when those his soldiers, his karate soldiers, end up shooting the bus, he, 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 he that's a case of one of his commands not being honored and obeyed and consequences being ensued. He knows that in order to keep his men in line, he's got to punish people who don't obey in his commands. The consequences. He calmly stabs the soldier who disobeyed his commands to death without yelling, without screaming. He literally, it was the calmest stabbing I've ever seen in a video game ever. And he does it in front of everyone, in front of all of his soldiers, in front of AJ, in front of Darpan, just to kind of show, hey, obey, or this is what's going to happen. And he kind of draws that boundary and he motivates his soldiers, like, obey these commands if you want to be in this army, or death ensues. So it's an emotional intelligence that he keeps people in line with. Like I said, it's not about treating people well, it's about being emotionally intelligent and being able to intrinsically motivate them. Now, he only might use that tactic of motivation with his soldiers, but he might motivate Paul and Yuma in other ways as well. Maybe he gives them power. Maybe that's what motivates them. Maybe he pays them exuberant amounts of money. Maybe that keeps them motivated. He knows how to motivate people, including AJ too, because whenever AJ is in a dire situation where he's really angry at Pagan, Pagan knows that the way to AJ's heart is through his mother, the mother that he cremated and he came to scatter her ashes Ishwari Gali, that is her name, and Pagan just knows that that's the key to 
AJ's heart. So he uses that a couple times throughout the game at the very beginning, at the very end, because that's really the only times we really see Pagan, unfortunately. Again, Ubisoft doesn't give us enough of great antagonists, unfortunately, in the games. But anyways, he knows how to make people tick, and it shows his strong emotional intelligence. Uh, another thing as well, in terms of his respect and reverence from others, the constituents in the south of Karat, when he goes, or I should say his body double, goes to that house I noticed that the people let him in without question and they refer to him as king. They say, please, king, yes, protect us. Showing respect and reverence. If they didn't respect him, they probably would have told him to fuck off or even worse. So, again, even showing the constituents obey and respect and revere him as well. That's further evidence of that. And lastly, he, at one point, the very beginning of the game, when him, Darpan, Paul, and AJ are sitting at the table about to eat, he literally puts a fork in Darpan's back and gets him to cry for help, and he doesn't get a fuss from Darpan pretty much at all. And if Darpan does give him a fuss, he says, okay, that's how it's going to be. Digs the fork deeper in his back. It's insane. Like I said, that probably further adds to the sense of emotional intelligence rather than respect and reverence, but he still, he finds a way to intrinsically motivate people or he, through the use of pain, whatever it might be, he can do it. The next area that Pagan crosses off is his charisma. Pagan Min is a very charismatic guy and a very charismatic leader. He's built an entire kingdom in Karat with a ton of followers, including his closest lieutenants, Yuma, Paul, and I believe there's one other one that I can't remember off the top of my head. But like I said, they are powerful in their own right. They have demonstrated on quite a few occasions that they're capable of running militaries, running very big branches of Pagan's prison to the point where they could probably go out on their own and maybe even create their own kingdoms elsewhere, or maybe even overthrow Pagan if they wanted to, but they choose not to. So the fact that Pagan can get them to follow him, get get them to work towards his mission and not their own mission. He's got to have a strong sense of leadership. He's got to have an attractiveness about him to get people to do his bidding, to do what he wants. You can't do that if people don't like you. And Pagan Min obviously does things that make him likable, whatever they might be. He's got it, and he's got qualities that very few people possess, one of that being charisma. So he's a very charismatic guy in his own right the fact that he gets very powerful people and not so powerful people to follow him and so many of them too the amount of soldiers he has his army very powerful even at the very end of the game his kingdom is basically lost to the golden path and really aj because aj is the one who led the golden path to taking over his castle and he still has someone grab a helicopter for him and get him the heck out of karat it's amazing it's like even when all the when the ashes and the kingdom's falling down around him he's still got an escape plan he's still got people to help him out even with Paul and Yuma being disposed of, because AJ got rid of them too throughout the game. It's just crazy to see, and it shows his strong ability to have many followers to help him in his cause as well. And lastly, I want to say, actually, no, not lastly, I want to get to Pagan's best quality, which is him having a ton of poise and control throughout the entirety of the game. One thing I noticed out of all the dialogue that Pagan Min has, he's got about 20-something-odd minutes of FaceTime and dialogue in the game, he only raises his voice one time, and it's to demonstrate a command to somebody. Not even yelling at them, just demonstrating how he wants it done. And it, meaning, basically, all the aforementioned and sent situations I've described where he's punishing soldiers, punishing Darpan, it, 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 all those situations, he's calm, cool, collected, and it, he doesn't bat an eye, and he does so with a lot of poise and control. And... 
when I'll give you one example of this. When his soldiers shot at the bus at the very beginning of the game, he gets off of the helicopter, he sees the aftermath of what the soldiers did. He's worried that AJ might have been shot because that's the whole point. His he wants AJ. That's his motivation throughout the game. And he just stops, calmly walks slowly to the soldier. He goes, I distinctly remember saying, stop the bus. Not shoot the bus. Stop the bus. Stop. Shoot. Stop. Shoot. He he does the whole, he carries on the whole conversation so calmly and he never it, it, he never raises his voice and what it to me shows is his one objective which is aj might have been lost in this fight and he never loses his cool at all he calmly approaches the soldier tell him what he did wrong and he says oh i just hate it when things get out of control and he even calmly stabs the dude to death i he does it with great vigor because doing an action like that requires energy but he never raises his voice not once ever and it shows that he has control over not only his emotions but over the situation as well nothing gets to him he can be calm cool and collected anybody can probably do anything they want to him and he still has control and he shows that he can pretty much do anything he wants he is in control of his own emotions and he can do bidding as he pleases so shows a lot of poise shows a lot of maturity shows a lot of experience making him an even better villain as well and at the prison with yuma later on because at the prison with yuma that's the next time we see him which is three quarters of the way through the game he calmly tells aj this is just tough love man you've been a naughty little shit but this is just how it's gotta be tough prison love he doesn't scream at aj for killing all the soldiers trying to take over um everything that he's built he just calmly calls him in little shit and leaves doesn't yell at him doesn't scream at him he is in control of his emotions and he's showing he's still in control of the situation no matter how hard aj tries pagan min is in control and he will keep his kingdom and no matter what the golden path does he will keep his kingdom and that's why he's going to maintain calm cool and collected because of the fact he can't show weakness to his enemies and show that he's losing grip on his kingdom so that's another reason why pagan min is showing his poison control is to keep his kingdom and not show weakness at all and it makes him an even better leader and it makes his soldiers and Yuma and Paul more confident in him. It's because he's keeping his control and he's showing he still has got control over his kingdom and the situation at hand. So the last, the, the one thing I want to bring up in this case, I mentioned earlier that he only raises his voice one time and when it's, he's giving a command. And this is at the very beginning of the game when he's got the fork and darp hands back. He goes, a text for help. He's like, you don't text for help, you cry for help. Puts the fork in his back walks him over to the rail he goes okay go ahead cry for help and then darpan goes help and then he goes oh come on you gotta cry for help and then he goes help and then he starts screaming no from your diaphragm because he's trying to demonstrate to darpan no to cry for help you have to do it in this manner because it is a cry it's not a yelp it is a cry and it's the one time that he's really raised his voice and i would make the argument that it's not really him yelling and showing loss of control over his emotions it's providing instruction by demonstrating the exact thing that he wants to happen from the person he's commanding which is darpan in this case so again even in showing that he can get anybody to do anything it shows that even his enemies like darpan respect and revere the man and evidently are scared of him because darpan does exactly what he says and to be fair, if I had a fork in my back, I would do anything to get the fork out of my back. So 
that's what he does. Fagan's showing he's got control of that fork in his back, and he calmly tells him, do this, and you will be rewarded. Darpan does it, fork out of the back, and we move on. So, really interesting way to go about it as well. And another thing to kind of cross off the list of what makes a great villain, at least my definition, Pagan knows how to overcome adversity, and he knows how to adapt to the situation. It's revealed that at one point in the game, at the very end, we're, we're kind of past the... A little spoiler warning, if you haven't played all the way through Far Cry 4 yet, um, I'll give a little spoiler warning in the title of this video, just so you guys are aware, so you don't get to this point and get the ending ruined for you. But the ending of the game involves, depending on what you do, you learn that Pagan and AJ's mother, Ishwari, they have a daughter together named Lakshmana. And Lakshmana was killed by AJ's biological father, which is Mohan Gale, the leader of the Golden Path. And Pagan had to mourn the death of his only daughter. She was a baby, like maybe two or three, at least that's the feeling I got from the portrait that he has in his shrine. And he also had to grasp with the love of his life running away to America with someone who he looked at as a son because Pagan views AJ as a son, if that wasn't clear enough already by this point in the game. And he had to cope with all of that. He had to cope with a ton of stuff. He had to cremate and bury his own daughter. And he had to mourn her, create a shrine for her. And he also had to mourn the loss of the love of his life, which is Ishwari, because she ran away and he knew he'd never see her again. And he even points out, he says, I walked into the shrine a sane man and came out like this, like the way he is currently. So it, 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 it it's just he it shows the adversity he comes through because he basically loses everything he comes out and he does something about it he creates he rises to the top and becomes the king of karat he has vice grips on this country he took a very terrible situation in his life he did something about it he overcame the adversity of losing everything adapting and then gaining it all back again except with in not the same manner as what he had before but you get the idea he's been through a lot and he's created a large kingdom because of it so he's overcome adversity adapted to his situation and made his life better because of it and now with aj's mother passing the love of his life ashwari he sees this opportunity and he seizes it and he finds aj and tries to bring him back and love him like he was his own son because that's how paganman views aj in this case and lastly the last thing i want to support my point about pagan being an amazing villain is the fact that his motivation is very clear throughout the entire game. Pagan's got one goal throughout Far Cry 4. It is to bring AJ home so that they can scatter Ishwari's ashes together and live like father and son, basically. That is the one goal. That's the one thing he wants to do. He wants to give the kingdom to his son that he's lost for all these years. Now, they're not biological, biologically related, but he loved Ishwari. Ishwari is AJ's mother, therefore by, I guess you could say, communicative properties, AJ is, in fact, Pagan's son. So he wants to take care of AJ and give him his kingdom while also also scattering Ishwari's ashes. And this motivation amounts from the aforementioned adversity he's had to overcome. Like I said, the loss of Ishwari, the loss of Lakshmana, his only daughter. That can't be a very easy thing to go for. And he's waited years to be re reunited with Ashari, his love, and AJ, and with her death and AJ's arrival, he's that he's got that chance, and he's not going to waste it, and he keeps that consistently throughout the game. He never tries to kill AJ, he never tries to harm AJ, even when other people want to. He puts a kibosh on it with Yuma, he says keep him intact. 
with the soldiers. He said, stop the bus, not shoot the bus, because he knew AJ was on it. And he never kills AJ. He probably has had opportunities to do so, and he chooses not to. So he's interested in keeping AJ alive in order to live the life that he envisions for him and himself. So that pretty much does it for my argument about Pagan Min being an amazing leader and one of the better of the two. Again, he's got checks off all the boxes for our definition of being a great villain. He's a great leader. He's got a lot of charisma, emotion, and intelligence. He's respected and revered by others. He's on every dollar bill of the karate currency. He has a clear motivation that we all know and understand. He keeps it consistently throughout the game. And then he also knows how to overcome adversity and adapt to the situation at hand, no matter what happens to him. He maintains that control, maintains that poise. He never loses his grips on reality. So that is my argument for Pagan Man being a great leader. Ladies and gentlemen, are there arguments that I might have missed that you also appreciate about Pagan Man? Are there things that you don't so much appreciate about Pagan Man? Whatever you feel, jump down in the comments below and let me know your thoughts. All right, so that kind of begs the question then, what about... Voss. How do I feel about Voss as a villain? Although I don't think he is superior to Pegaman, I still really, really enjoyed Voss, and I thought he was a good villain, but I still think he lacks some of the qualities that a great villain and some of the best villains in video games need to possess. But before I get into what Voss lacks, I want to talk about what he actually has. First of all, Voss has a really unique personality in and of himself. He has a certain demeanor and attitude that's very rogue it's very barbaric in a sense he curses a lot he yells a lot he swears a lot he's really cruel in a lot of sense he will kill without batting an eye he doesn't really care so in that aspect he's got a lot of uh grunge to him a lot of angst and i could see why a lot of people would identify and enjoy that in a villain because it's really intense and it really keeps you engaged throughout the game and in addition, Voss, he actually checks off one of the boxes that would fit one of my criteria for the best villain, which is knowing how to overcome adversity and adapt. He's tried to he tried to kill Jason and our other protagonists in the game on multiple occasions, but he resorted to different tactics each time he tried to do so. So what I'm saying is even though each attempt at him trying to kill Jason failed, he adapted and he overcame that situation and tried a different way. He didn't become consumed by that definition of insanity where he would just try the same thing over and over again. First, I believe he tried uh, with a bullet. That didn't work. He tried fire. That didn't work. He tried water. That didn't work. He tried a knife. It didn't work. None of his ways actually worked, but he still had the sense of mind to adapt and try something different rather than resorting to the same tactics and attempting to just become insane by trying the same thing and not um, having a work and expecting a different result and it's kind of brought full circle with his reference to the definition of insanity that he talks about if you don't know what scene i'm talking about look up the definition of insanity Voss far cry 3 on youtube and he'll talk about his little soliloquy about how he learned the definition of insanity and what he did to the guy that told him that but anyways he's he there's also another moment where it shows he's had to overcome a bit of hardship I believe the second time he tries to kill AJ and his friends, he's going to use the gasoline and oil and burn them alive, essentially. And he says that there was a time he, 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 he shows his respect for family. He's like, without family, who are we really? And he starts to go into this deeper thinking. And he says there was a time that he would and did kill for his sister, but he gave, but his family gave him an ultimatum and he had to make a choice. The game doesn't really go into what that ultimatum really was, but apparently the at least the 
the feeling I got from what he was saying was that his family double-crossed him and he had to pay the price for it. And in doing so, he had to adapt and get to where he is now. Where he is now, he's not really a leader of this clan, but he commands the soldiers is the impression I get, so take that for what you will. But either way, he had to adapt to the situation and go on without his family. So he's overcome adversity and he's had to adapt in order to be successful. So those are the two things I think that makes Boss a really good villain and why I really enjoyed him in Far Cry 3. But what makes him not a excellent villain or a great villain or one that's not, I don't think is as great as Pagan? Voss, to me, doesn't have the respect and reverence from others and also isn't very charismatic. There's nothing in the game that even really suggests that Voss is the leader of the overarching group that you're fighting. The reason being, at the very beginning of the game, when he is sitting there with Grant and Jason, somebody in a suit tells him, hey, stop terrorizing the prisoners and come do this instead. And he obeys, so it, it tells us as the audience, hey, Voss actually isn't the head honcho at play here. There's somebody above him giving him commands and telling him what to do. So to me, it's showing, okay, why isn't Voss the leader? Okay, that means there's a better leader than him, which would mean that he doesn't have the total respect and reverence from everybody else, because if he did, he would be at the top of the food chain, because they would support him ultimately more than the person who's at the top. So it shows that he might be lacking a little bit in that particular department. And he doesn't have the charisma to overthrow the current leader. So it, it begs a lot of questions there as to why Voss doesn't have the respect and reverence from others and why he isn't as charismatic. So I found that really, really interesting as well. And he also doesn't even really have the respect of the people he's terrorizing, that being Jason Grant and Liza. He tells Grant, look me in the eye. And when Grant doesn't obey his commands, he resorts to screaming at him until Grant just says, fine, fuck it, I'll look at you. And I think the only reason Grant really did that is because he was annoyed. If somebody kept screaming at me, I'd get annoyed and probably obey them too. But it doesn't show that he's got control of the situation. He loses his cool, he loses his poison control, and resorts to yelling. Like, he, he's losing his emotions and showing weakness to me. So it, it doesn't show that Grant really respects him. And if the people you're terrorizing don't really respect you, what power do you really have over them? Of course, he ends up killing them about five minutes later. But at the end of the day... It shows all along the way that Grant and Jason don't respect him at all. They might be fearful, but they don't really respect him, and thus Voss will never get them to do his bidding. So it's showing it's showing a lack of respect and a lack of reverence from others in that respect. And then a few minutes later, we get this little off-the-side cutscene on like a projector where he's like filming Liza, trying to get like a ransom message out of her, and she basically just says, hey, fuck you, I'm not doing that. And again, it's showing that he might try to scare them, but at the end of the day, they don't respect and revere him, so they're not going to do his bidding. So again, further showing that he doesn't have respect and reverence from others either as well. And also the fact that he was double-crossed by his own family. Again, can I really confirm that he's double-crossed by his family? I believe he says that they do. However, I'm still a little fuzzy on that detail, but the fact that his family double-crossed him and some of them are still alive to tell the tale, his sister mainly, it shows that if they were scared enough, if they revered him enough, they wouldn't have double-crossed him because they probably would have feared or at least known that he would have had the power to do something about it, and clearly he didn't because some of them are still alive. So that also begs some question about his respect and reverence from others. And one final thing I will say on that is we actually don't really see Voss's soldiers um, obey any of his commands at all. I cannot recall one time throughout the game where he gives a soldier a command 
and they um and they obey it without question the example that i that really comes to mind and really cements this for me is in that green screen projector cutscene with liza where he's trying to get a ransom message out of her he tells one of the soldiers who comes in and he says hey get the fuck out of here and he's like yelling at him and whatnot and the soldier actually never leaves the room he just keeps standing there boss tells him leave and he keeps staying there so the soldier's not even really obeying his commands which if you don't obey the commands of your superior officer if that's what Voss is in this case then do you really respect and revere him probably not you probably don't trust him at all either so it's like if his own soldiers don't respect and revere him why should we really as the audience either so another food for thought in that case as well moving on a little bit going on to the next big checkbox that I had that Voss is lacking it's that he doesn't have the poise controller the maturity to really deal with really tough situations and a lot of times he he yells a lot in, in a lot of the cutscenes that we see with Voss. He yells, I'd say, a good at least third of the time, if not half the time, which it, it it's showing when he doesn't get his way. He just screams and yells when he feels insecure. A couple of examples. He's got to scream at Grant when Grant doesn't look him in the eye. Voss doesn't get his way. He's got to scream at him to get his way. He screams at Jason when he doesn't like the way Jason looks at him. He's giving Jason this soliloquy about the guy who told him the definition of insanity. And he basically says, I thought the guy was full of shit, so I killed him. So it shows that the people who tell him things that he doesn't like, he just kills them. He doesn't listen to reason. He just kills them, like, really immaturely. And then he he even says, when he's doing this with Jason, when he's talking to Jason, Jay, he's like, I don't like the way you're looking at me. And he screams at him. He says it, he screams at him. He just throws him into the water, he doesn't have the security of mind in order to deal with the situation or listen to anybody's advice, and he just solves his problems by killing. So it doesn't really show that, one, he listens to others. And if he doesn't listen to anybody, he can't grow as a leader, and it helps it it further in, in... What's the word I'm looking for here? It further hinders his development as a character, as a villain, as a leader, and it doesn't really make him any better and more of a compelling character in this case. So... If he can't handle somebody looking at him funny, what makes you think he can handle leading an entire army or group of people? So it just begs really other interesting questions as well as to his poison control and really uh, tough situations. So it's like, well, it, eh, it, it, it just makes it hard for me as an audience member to buy into it. And lastly, I don't think Voss, or actually not lastly, second to lastly, I don't think Voss is very emotionally intelligent. I don't think he truly knows how to get the very best out of people. The reason being is because he consistently yells at just about everybody when he wants something. He yells at his soldiers, he yells at his hostages, he yells at his constituents. The only exception to this rule is with that scene with Liza. He's calmly talking to Liza, but then he yells at the soldiers, so then... Even then, he's not yelling directly at Liza, but he's yelling in the presence of Liza, which is demonstrating that he doesn't have control over that situation because he's yelling at the soldier. So it, it, it's just, it, it doesn't really show, it shows that in order for him to get what he needs or what he wants, he's got to yell. He doesn't know how to adjust his tactics to suit the person at hand in such a way to get them to do what he needs them to do show not very emotionally intelligent not very emotionally expendable and it hurts his leadership qualities as well and lastly i don't think Voss really has a very clear motivation in far cry 3 at the very beginning of the game when he first captures jason grant and all of their other friends he says that you guys are very expensive you'll make for great ransom essentially 
But then throughout the entirety of the rest of the game, he tries to basically kill all of them, which would eliminate his his earlier claim that, hey, we're in this to kidnap you for the money. If you kill your hostages, you don't get any money. So what was the point? What's the motivation here other than him just wanting to be cruel and killing people? Like it, it, I didn't really buy into the motivation in that respect. If it was for the fact that he felt betrayed and cited because of what happened in his family's past, I think that would make him much more interesting. And I think where the game falls short with Voss is the fact that they don't explore his past more. If they explored his past more, it might tell us more about his future and why he exercises the methods that he does. They only really hint at it throughout the game instead of going full circle and telling us more about him. So I think the game does Voss a disservice in that respect, and that's just part of writing and whatnot. But it, at the end of the day, we don't really see a lot of Voss's motivation, and the motivation that we do see just isn't that interesting, or it's something that's not already a cliche. It's something that we've all seen before, and it's just not very strong. So again, at the end of the day, guys, I want to be really clear. I really, really enjoyed Voss. I think he had certain qualities that made him a very unique and popular villain. He had that angst that's really relatable. He had that drive and that determination that makes him really relatable because we all really want things. We all want to achieve goals in life and in everything we do. And Voss has the intensity that I think we all can admire in that respect. But the fact of the matter is we don't know his goals. We don't know his motivation. So a lot of that drive intensity just seems to be going in circles that doesn't seem to be going nowhere. So I think he was a very unique, a very great, and a very edgy leader, which made him a lot of fun to see on screen. But I don't think it made for him being the strongest villain or the best leader that he could be. So I want to make that really clear that I still liked him. I just don't think he was a better villain than Pagan in this case. So again, I just want to reiterate, based on my definition of, of a, vil a great villain and who is the better of the two, Pagan or Voss? I'm going to have to go with Pagan because of the fact that he's got maturity, poise, and control. He's very emotional, intelligent, very charismatic. He's a fantastic leader that knows how to adapt to any situation that's thrown at him and do so with poise, control, and maturity. And Voss, he's got some of those qualities, but he's lacking a lot of the aspects where he doesn't know how to handle tough situations. Other than yelling at people, he's not as emotionally intelligent that he could be. He doesn't have the same respect and reverence from from everybody that Pagan might have. So it just shows me the difference between the two. I enjoyed seeing them both in Far Cry 3 and Far Cry 4, and I'm sure a lot of you guys did too. So whatever you think, whatever you liked about either of them, feel free to jump down in the comments below and let me know your thoughts as well. All right, so thanks for sticking with me for that fun discussion, guys. I might do like a full video essay on, on this later on, but the last thing I want to talk about in this episode of Coffee's, Coffee and Kernels is a video I released earlier in the week about Gears of War. And the video I released was about characters in the Gears of War franchise that we get a little bit of, but I would love to explore more. And they included uh, Major Paddock, the Carmine family, and Dell. Basically, I talk about those three characters because we get, they're very interesting people and they're very interesting families, but we really don't get a ton about them throughout the history of the Gears of War franchise. For example, Major Paddock to me would be really interesting to explore because he was a UIR soldier. He's the only UIR soldier we really get throughout entirety of the series, and he was part of a war that was pre-emergence day, pre-emergence day times, and I think it'd be really interesting to explore the other side of the Pendulum Wars, how the UIR operated and did things, what Major Paddock's role was and all that, what his previous life was like before E-Day, how he ended up joining up with the COG. All of those questions I would love to see answered why the Pendulum War started, what the UIR's involvement was in it. And I think it would make for some really interesting, 
I don't think it would make for a really good standalone game in and of itself, but even like a few hour DLC, kind of like what we got with Hive Busters, I think would be really, really great. We get to see a little bit more of Paddock in Gears of War Judgment with the extension where you fast forward during to Gears of War 3 and how Paddock interacts with Baird and Cole to get them a ginormous boat, what they need to get to Azura. We get a little bit of into Paddock's backstory with that, but that's in terms of the future. It's not within his past, and I would be very interested and curious to see more about his past overall. The next uh, characters I would love to know more about is the Carmine family. So that's Anthony, Benjamin, Clayton, Gary, and Lizzie. The one really interesting thing that I would love to see is out of all of the Carmine family, Clayton is really the only one left in living after Gears 5. Clayton has lost all of his brothers and also his niece, if I'm not mistaken. Lizzie's his niece. And I'd be curious to see what and how he copes with that situation, or better yet, how do his parents cope with that situation if they're still around? Because all four of those sons, went, all four of their sons went off to war after Emergence Day and they lost most of them. How do they cope with that as a family? That'd just be really interesting to see. Or where does Clayton go from there after he learns about the death of each of his brothers and his niece too? Because Lizzie, and that's another thing that's on my mind. Who, who, which of his brothers did Lizzie belong to? Which of them was her father? That would be another really interesting thing too. And that would really suck to know if it was Anthony, Ben, or Gary was Lizzie's father because then father and daughter both get consumed by the war with the locusts slash swarm. So that'd be a really big brummer. And I'd love to see how Clayton copes with that and approaches war essentially every day, knowing that a lot of his family has been taken by the locusts. So really, really interesting that I would like to see. Again, I don't think that would bode for an entire game, but I think it would make some interesting questions for a few hour DLC, just a little taste of Clay, even Clayton's like early life and past. Like that would be, that'd be interesting to see too, as his brothers go off to war. So Another reason why I'd love to see the Carmine family more, or even Lizzie's backstory before she uh, moved on. So, And then lastly, one character I think that the Gears franchise could really benefit from exploring more is Dell. I think Dell is probably one of the most likable characters within the entirety of the Gears franchise that I've ever seen. Aside from Augustus Cole is really, really likable. Uh, Marcus, I'd say, is really likable too. And also... Dell is in that conversation now too and he's really the only one out of those three that we really don't get a ton of story into with Cole we get a little bit of background into his thrashball career what his life was like before what his life was like during the war what it's like after same thing with Marcus really but we never really talk about Dell enough all we really know about Dell is one he's really likable he's really charismatic he really cares about Kate and JD, and also he's been fighting with JD since the very beginning of their car careers, and they've been friends basically forever. That's all we really know about Dell, and I think that even for those reasons and the fact that we know almost nothing about Dell, I think we could almost get an entire game just about Dell because of the fact that we know so little about him. Like I said, all we really know about Dell is the fact that He's been in the cog for a lot of his life. He was part of a strand settlement with Kate and JD. And that's really all we really get in that he, him and JD, what do you call it? Deserted from the cog at some point in their careers. If we knew why they maybe deserted from the cog at one point, why they joined the cog or what Dell's childhood was like growing up with JD or growing up in the middle of all this resettlement. I think that'd be really interesting too, or just see where Dell, where all of Dell's strengths lie as well and learn more about him as a character. I think that'd be Really fun, really interesting, really exciting to explore. So um, I'm kind of teetering on the fact that he could be a D DLC or a full game. I'm kind of leaning on the side of full game just because we know so little about him. 
And I think it would bode very interesting to see uh, how his path came to be what it was. So, ladies and gentlemen, are there other interesting characters that you would love to explore the story more in the Gears of War franchise? Or what's your favorite Gears of War game? Whatever you think, feel free to jump down in the comments below and let me know your thoughts. All right, ladies and gentlemen, so thanks for sticking with me for this episode. Thanks for having some of these fun conversations with me. I greatly appreciate it. That'll actually do it for this episode of Coffee and Kernels. Guys, if you like what you're hearing and seeing, feel free to jump down, or feel free to like, comment, subscribe, or do whatever it is you do to support your podcast and YouTube channels. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, this has been the Bankroll Pippo YouTube channel. I've been Bryce, and until next time, have a great day.